Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm here with my friends, Brian. Hey, Josh. Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University. Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts. Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And our broken friend, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin Maynard rocking the claw from Rock Island, Illinois. Maybe we should Maybe explain that. that. For those of you that are <laughs> listening and not watching, which is everyone, <laughs> Kevin has a giant cast on his right hand. You want to tell us that story, Kevin? Um, yeah, I was in a bar fight. So, <laughs> Or... I was playing deck hockey and I fell. Nobody hit me. I was just, I slipped on a the wet deck. That was it. <laughs> I, I think both are equally believable. So, <laughs> Why did you choose red? Um, well, I was going to do pink, um, but then I chose red because I have to do like three interviews over the next two weeks on TV. So I wanted to be on brand with Quad City Arts. <laughs> Consummate professional Kevin Maynard yep. right there. Always branded. I really appreciate the branding of your injury. That is, yeah. that is why not? When that's gone, you could just get a face tat. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Oh my gosh. So I sat down with uh, my friend, Dan Mann, um, who uh, he's been in the industry for quite a while. You'll hear about that here in a little bit, but he made a quick mention of chicken fingers in his episode. So I've got a question for all of you. What is your favorite handheld fried chicken uh, of choice. Is it buffalo wings, uh, boneless wings, chicken fingers, also known as chicken strips, or nuggets? Oh, I, I will say buffalo wings, like bone-in wings for sure. And why is that? Oh, because they're they, they taste better. Um, I don't know. They're... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've never really put this much thought into my handheld chicken preference. <laughs> well, I have a four-year-old, so I'm going to have to go with like all-time four-year-old favorite chicken strips. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say nuggets. Really? I did too. <laughs> I thought you were going McDonald's nuggets. You duped us. Well, well, you know. The old McNugget. Being a mom, like you end up eating your child's food off their plate quite a lot when they don't finish it. So I tend to go with the chicken strips. So they're more fulfilling for me because I will end up eating three quarters of whatever I make him. So we definitely go with the chicken strips in our house. I go boneless wings all the way because they're not wings. They're glorified chicken nuggets. They're kind of like <laughs> the best combination of strips and nuggets. And they hold the sauce the best because the sauce is really what I'm there it's for. It's just the vehicle. True. Yeah. That is specifically barbecue sauce, additionally ranch, and sometimes also ketchup, but they don't all get mixed together. But okay. I mean, I like to have at least three different <laughs> options. The sauce abilities. So those who listen to our holiday episode might remember when I was asked which cookie is my favorite. And <laughs> I I just said all of them essentially. And handheld chicken, that's that's enough. Like full stop there. I'll eat any of it. I like them depending on my mood. You know, it might be for the flavor like Kevin's thing, you know, whatever. But um but I guess if I had to choose a favorite right now to just give you an answer, Josh, I'm thinking of medieval times and technically it's a Cornish hen, but they give you that little Cornish hen and the and yeah. tear it apart and eat it with your hands. And that was always a fun experience. I, I like that Brian's answer literally involves him dismembering an animal <laughs> as part of it. He's going like hardcore back back into into the days of instinct of just tearing apart his meal. 
but it's not really handheld. It's on a plate. He's just he's just subbing his fingers for a, like a fork. <laughs> I am eating with my hands. That's I mean handheld. It's let's go to yeah, the judges. I guess to get it. Yeah, plate to your <laughs> mouth. Okay. And especially if it's a Cornish in, I mean that entire thing's handheld. Yeah. This is my favorite starting question, I think. Well, <laughs> right now people are saying what's this podcast about again? What is this? <laughs> I love boneless wings, but I also love the traditional fried chicken. Like I, I can never not go for a drumstick. Like that is, that is my like handheld, uh, chicken of choice myself. And all of this is completely irrelevant to our interview, but I thought it was a fun way to start. Um, so let's jump in. Uh, we're talking to Dan man and you know, there's a, like incredibly brief connection where he mentions chicken fingers. So enjoy the interview. <laughs> My name is Dan Mann, and I am the owner agent at Agency ETC in Nashville, Tennessee. I have been in the industry since 1985, and I don't know how many years that is, but it's a lot. So that's what I do. Well, thanks for joining us, Dan. Let's start and find out a little bit about you. How did you originally fall in love with the arts as a whole? Well, it was in college. Uh, first concert, I was raised in the Midwest, had no opportunity. My parents weren't into the arts at all. So the first time I ever went to a concert, I was in college, and I thought that was cool. So pretty much every Saturday night, I was out seeing shows. And, and again, uh, because of my background and upbringing at the time, it was the early CCM or Contemporary Christian Music shows that I was seeing every night uh, while I was in college at UC Sacramento. Yeah, every Saturday night I would see that, and I thought that was pretty cool. I was working at a uh, retail store, which for no other reason than I was the college kid working in this retail store, they put me in charge of the music department. And so I got to know all of the up-and-coming CCM music and the musicians, and it was a large chain, so I got to meet the musicians as well as hear their CDs, or before CDs, their LPs, cassettes, prior to them even being released. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. So that, that was my first exposure to anything artistic. So how did that then manifest itself into you getting into the industry? Well, it wasn't on purpose. Yeah, this is a, a career by accident, I guess. I was at another store staying in retail at the time while I was in college. And uh, part of what I had to do for this Christian retail store was go out and sell things to churches, uh, sell music programs, sell Sunday school material and things like that to churches. I was approached by a local musician who said, hey, while you're out there, why don't you just sell, you know, some concerts for me and I'll, I'll pay you 15 percent of whatever offering I get. Uh, as I did that, I added two or three others, local musicians, well, local and regional musicians. Fairly quickly, I started making almost as much money selling them in these church gigs in the uh, central California area uh, as I did in my retail job. And I thought, well, and so uh, that started in 1985, and I've been in the business ever since. But literally, it was not anything planned. It was just all of a sudden I realized that I had a proclivity for sales. I knew how to put concerts on and and artists in venues that would like them. And that's what ended up happening. Now, you haven't just been an agent 
since 1985, your your career path kind of went all over the place. So can you kind of walk us through 1985 through now career path um, and, and how that progressed and, and how those things happened? Sure. Yeah. I, I have friends who just flat out will tell you that I can't hold a job, but that's so I started, I built an agency enough to where I had a client who had once been a national act had toured open for Johnny Cash. So they'd had some success, had gone back and kind of semi-retired and were only doing kind of weekend warrior stuff. But we were making really good money on the West Coast and they wanted one more run at it. Can you share who that was? Sure. It was a band by the name of Brush Arbor and they were a uh, West Coast uh, bluegrass, country bluegrass band. And um, in fact, uh, Wayne Rice out of that group the older brother was a family act, and the older brother out of that group became long-running president of the IBMA. So, I mean, this was an act that had uh, was pretty substantial. So, in the conversation with that act, I moved back to Tennessee, not thinking that I would stay here. But I moved here in 1988 in part to get them to see what I could do about getting them a, a national record deal again. We got them a national record deal with Benson Records that lasted one record. And they went, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore and kind of went back into their semi-retirement and, and doing their weekend warrior gigs, uh, which, which was great. But that put me in Nashville. Over the course of two years, some of the people that I met, some of the record company people I met because I had a little office on Music Row, really small office on Music Row. Okay, it was a closet. But that's what I was doing was, you know, booking, just straight out booking acts, not doing anything else. And uh, a guy came to me and said, hey, Triad Artists, which was a major agency at the time before they sold out to, uh, before they sold to William Morris. Triad Artists has this artist by the name of Glenn Campbell that has just cut a gospel record and nobody knows what to do with him over there. Uh, part of his contract is he needs to go out and promote the thing, but they don't know who to call. Can you, would that be anything you'd be interested in? I said, yes, oddly enough, you know, go figure. I had Glenn Campbell for a little over a year while he promoted that record. I, I booked him mostly into large churches and into large Christian festivals and events like that for a year. We did, I don't know how many dates we did, but enough to put money in my pocket. But it also kind of put me on the map uh, as to a guy that could was willing to take things on or couldn't say no, however you want to describe that. And so that's where, so I'm booking Glenn Campbell and I get a knock on my door one day and it is the <clears throat> Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which is a, in, in Nashville, is an enormous entity in 1993. And uh, they asked me, the question was, this is all it was, if you were going to start a record company in town, what would that look like? That was the question. And uh, as a young guy, having just lost Glenn Campbell, Branson, basically, I kind of went, well, that's, that's kind of a cool thing. So I told them what I would do if I was going to build a record company. Two months later, they called me again. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to get free meals out of this. This is cool. We can go to local fern bar and have our iced tea and chicken fingers. At the end of the day, uh, they came back and said, okay, now you've described it. You've, you've articulated a business plan, what you would do now go implement it. And so, uh, here I was a fairly young guy in contemporary Christian music and I wasn't one of the big players, 
but I started a record company for them. And for the next few years, whether it was them or whether it was other small labels, I helped find and facilitate distribution, or I would do the creative side, uh, A&R, song publishing. I mean, I got my fingers in everything because they were small and I would learn the industry from the inside out and figure it out. It wasn't like I had a mentor. It wasn't like there was anybody that was taking the time to develop. I just literally had to figure it out and ask questions. And uh, if you're curious, you can learn pretty much anything. It's not rocket science, but it is something that you have to have fairly thick skin because you hear no much more than you hear yes mm-hmm. in this industry. But it's a, heck, I'm sitting here talking to you. You've told me no hundreds of times more than you've told me yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, and you're still my friend. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but that's the entire industry's like that. If you've got thick skin, you're not a, you're not easily offended and you're, and you're persistent and you learn, you soak everything up. I mean, there's hundreds of opportunities and I took on everyone I could just to learn. And it's still going on that way. That's something that literally my career now, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but my career now is. So where'd you go after that record label? So after the record label, that's. Or what happened with the record label? The right? record label uh, ran for a year and a half. We went from high concept, that conversation to product on shelves and seven Dove Award nominations within seven months, which means I was working 90 hours a week. I was developing a team. I was doing all the marketing and all of the A&R. So I was in the studio every time everybody was, I was sorting through songs. And I was who doing some of the artists that were on your label? There was a guy by the name of Brent Lamb that was on the label. Brent was an artist, uh, went on to be the lead singer of Shenandoah after uh, Marty Rabin left for a short stint. Marty's back, by the way, and he's really good. Uh, Brent Lamb was one of them. There was a quartet. It was Big John Hall, Jim Murray of the Imperials, Terry Blackwood of the Imperials. Fourth guy, I can't remember what it was. So it was kind of Southern gospel, but it was pretty hip Southern gospel. So I had a, a kind of a, for gospel, it was it was hip. Is that a thing? I don't think it's a thing. <laughs> But um, uh, in 93, it was the hip Southern gospel thing. So I was really proud of that record, uh, although I, I don't own a copy. So that's what I did. And then at the end of that, then I was consulting with a whole lot of small labels and helping them get distribution and, and getting better known. And then I brought several artists into the fold and started a management firm until about 2001, 2002, I had a management company and that's all I did. So I had several artists, had three of them on reunion records. Uh, so I worked a lot with reunion records in town. And again, all of this entire time, it was a, it, it was in the contemporary Christian music field. I, I had some CHR acts. I had, <laughs> I had uh, one act um, and I'll tell who they are, that their name was Pillar. So they were real well, I would call them headbangers. I don't know if that's what they would call themselves. They were they were loud. That's that's what I. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, they asked me one time because they saw that I was researching for a new record of theirs, music, and I had you know Lincoln Park CDs I was listening to, and I had all of these, and they're going, "Man, you really dig our music." I'm going, "No, man, it's too damn loud, but I know what to do with it." <laughs> and so, and so, eventually, they went from their really small label to Atlantic. Uh, based on the album that we had worked on. You did that until the early 2000s? I did. And and where did your career take you after that? I got back into doing some record, uh, small record labels and things like that. And then, uh, and then I just, there was, um, uh, let's call it a crisis of faith, 
where I just didn't know that I wanted to pound the pavement selling Christian music anymore. I mean, that's really what it was. I took a year off. I went into uh, uh, Home Depot and got a job in um, uh, management training at a Home Depot store. It was Expo Design Center, so that's Home Depot. And I spent a year at Home Depot kind of hiding out and trying to figure out what was going on. And in the middle of that year, uh, a guy that I had known in the music business when I first moved here in the 80s come, came and tapped me on the shoulder, and that was 2007, 2008. And he went, what the hell are you doing here? And my response was, I'm having the time of my life because when I leave this, I go home, I close my eyes, I don't think about it, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't worry about the plumbing, uh, not making the show. I, I literally took a year off. He talked me into coming back and working. He had a book that was um, he had just gotten a hold of, and as a he had a speakers bureau, and he wanted somebody to come and represent that book and the speaker and do all of those things. And I mean, the book was you know, hadn't been published yet, but he thought he could get a publishing. So finally he talked me into it. So I went back and I started booking and the book was called The Shack, um, which there's been a movie. It sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million books. And by the way, in publishing circles, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's it. It's a lot. So, I mean, it, it was just this enormous success. And so we, I mean, I worked my tail off for a year and a half uh, on that until he said, hey, don't book me anymore. You're exhausting me. I've got to do something else. Well, so I'm back in the booking thing. So I get another job with another agency, uh, another agency, a Christian had been a Christian agency, or it still is, uh, contacted me and said that they wanted to develop a performing arts center agency. Now, I'd never worked in that. So that was 2010. So in 2011, I started uh, an agency, which is now called Ovation, the Ovation Agency, Jeff Roberts. Uh, was there about five years, uh, went on to New Frontier Agency for about a year. And then in 2019, I started my own agency, which I should have done a long time ago. But that's where I am, and I'm, I'm having a good time. But that's where my, my career has literally, literally been all over the place. So. And your, uh, your agency isn't just an agent. agency. It's also artist management. Yeah, that's kind of where the ETC comes in. It's, it means it's... You know, I own it. I can do whatever I want with it. So, yeah, I do have at least one artist under exclusive management, and that's been really fun to book and to manage the career of a, an up-and-coming artist. That is, um, uh, they toured for seven years as Merle Haggard's opening act. Um, it's not like they're unfamiliar with it, but traditional country music, uh, as traditional as you can get. They're uh, guys in their 30s who are singing Hank Williams songs and Merle Haggard songs and and then their songs that they write sound like Merle Haggard songs or Hank Williams songs or and all of the old writers in town the the writers who had number one hits with George Jones and Merle Haggard and all of this are eager to write with them Bill Anderson has written with them um Jeannie Seeley has an album or has a song on the album uh, the new album and Things like that. So, I mean, this is this is as traditional country, with, I mean, some pretty heavy hitters involved. And so, part of what I did was, then I had to put together an album in conjunction. So we have uh, two producers on the record with them, 
and that's uh, Ben Isaacs of the Isaacs and uh, Doyle Lawson of Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. Both both are producing their current record. In addition to that, we're also producing a television show that will be out on RFD in 2023. What year is this? In 2023. Yes, in part, my career today. And this artist, the artist that you have exclusive management with and represent, that's the Malpas Brothers. That's the Malpas Brothers. So, yes, the Malpas Brothers, it's the, right now, it's the only country act. And by country, I mean they have steel guitar, electric guitar, and drums headlining bluegrass festivals, which traditionally has no electronics or no drums in any bluegrass set. But the Malpas Brothers have charmed the bluegrass audiences to the point where they are headlining bluegrass festivals. They have their own festival in Denton, North Carolina. I'm back to learning. I mean, I'm learning what it takes to produce a television show. I'm learning what it takes to put creative with the uh, budgetary constraints of the the television uh, network, putting all of that together and then getting cameras in their faces and shooting what we will be doing is shooting you know, 26 episodes of uh, fun, what I hope is going to be a fun variety show. And that's scheduled to come out in 2023? It is. It is, yeah. What is it like to go from manager to producer? What are the biggest hurdles and the biggest learning points there? The learning points are, a lot of it is terminology. Being a manager is, the best way I can describe being a manager, at least in my career, is having the ability to be liquid. So when there are cracks, liquid fills in the cracks. You just have to be able to move with the terrain and with whether you're managing expectations, you're managing expectations from the buyer, from the record producer, from the artist, from the, I mean, you're just managing expectations. And you've got to be completely flexible. And it's the same in producing a television show. If I produced a television show, if if money was no object and I could do what I wanted, it would look different than what it's going to look now. Uh, I have constraints. So I have to work within those constraints and how far can I push it to the extreme to get within, but stay within the constraints, the financial constraints, so that somebody doesn't come after me. As the as the producer and the manager of the Malpas Brothers, you're you're working on this television show, and do you have to find the person to design and build the set? Do you have to like all aspects of that, and how how does that all come together? Great question. If I'm doing my job right, I am finding the creative people who will get that done. Uh, as opposed to doing finding all of the little pieces myself. So I've got a creative director on the television show that is has worked on other television shows and has worked for other television shows that have been broadcast on that network. And then I uh, have just put in, or the network is just about to put in place somebody who from their end will kind of work with us to help develop and find all of that. They'll provide the um, the grip uh, camera guys and the lighting guys, and they'll handle all of that. So I don't have to do that. But again, it's it's a matter of negotiating and figuring out what I need, and then letting them go out and figure out how to put all of that into place. And now you've said it's a variety going to be a variety show. Have you started scheduling acts to be on that show, and how does that process work? Well, yeah, we have talked with a lot of acts who have said, absolutely, I want to be on there. Uh, have we started scheduling it yet? No. There, I did, um, for a show called Larry's Country Diner, I did a little bit of their talent 
coordinating for them on that show. Again, it's it's just trying to figure out who wants to be involved and if they can if they can make the trip to Fort Worth where we're going to be shooting it or do I need to come here to Nashville and capture it here. It's just a matter of figuring out the details and pretty much everybody wants you know if it's going to gain them audience share and uh, relevance, they see the value in it and want to play. And in shows like these, whenever talent comes onto the show, it's a promotional benefit for them. Mm -hmm. Is there any financial compensation for the acts to be on the show? That depends show by show. So yes, there is a, there's always a talent fee. Those of us who are going to be working a show on a shoestring budget, so is the talent fee. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, commensurate with my pay, which is going to be very small. It's actually an honorarium. It is a gift. Uh, there's not much money there. Some of the bigger television shows, obviously, you get paid quite a bit. But if you're a guest artist, there's there's very little. There's very little money left over at the end of the day. The Malpas brothers may not make. I'm hoping to cover their expenses, literally, for a year of shows. If we get two, two three seasons in, then we should expect a payday. But uh, first, second season, it's all about promotion and, and building up the audience. So and it's great promotion for the Malpas Brothers live as well. Shows, live shows, for their, live their show CDs, their, the, yeah, because we will we have the opportunity to be able to do that. It's also an opportunity to gain sponsorship. I mean, we'll get paid off in different ways, not directly from the television show. So there will be you know financial benefit to it, but that's the... Not immediate, not certainly not on the budget I'm going to be working with. So. Now, whenever you have an artist that you're uh, booking and managing, but then you've also got a lot of a, a number of other artists on your roster as well. Sure. How do you balance your time in promoting the different artists within your roster? Not well. <laughs> it's part of what I do is I try and structure a time period during the day that is devoted to agency work, which is making the calls and then having the conversations, chasing leads, creating leads, just having conversations. So I'll block a big portion of my day to doing that. And then the early morning and the late afternoon, early evening, I'm finishing up the, the details on whether it's advancing a date or, or uh, sending out contracts or all of that. And right now, uh, post-pandemic, you don't want to hire people until you know you really can pay for it because you our industry is a little I keep hearing the number you know we're at 60 percent of what we were pre-pandemic I'm doing better than pre-pandemic thank goodness but also I'm I'm hammering the phones every day mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm better than I was pre-pandemic but the rest of it just comes you know I catch it when I can and with, with booking those acts, is what acts you're going to pitch, is that dependent solely on who you're talking to and the market that they're in? Yeah. And um, one of the reasons, I have a fairly diverse roster. So it's not like I'm pitching eight country acts. In fact, I've got one country act, one singer-songwriter, one radio personality, one bluegrass act, one jazz big band act one across the board it is very diverse so that pretty much I can create a uh, have a conversation with pretty much anybody on in small venues 
And by small, anything less than a thousand I do, is where my bread and butter is. Mm-hmm. For those for over a thousand, then I can put together a show with the Malpas brothers. And for example, there's Wilkesboro Community College in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, that is bringing in a an Opry style show with the Malpas brothers, uh, bluegrass act that I represent called Appalachian Roadshow and a, um, a singer-songwriter by the name of Tia Goins. So we're going to do it like the Opry. You know, you're going to be on here, you're going to be on here, you're going to be on here, and just kind of keep it going. That's the kind of shows that we have to produce for the larger venues. But having a variety of acts that we can kind of beg and borrow and steal from kind of makes, makes it work. There's one thing that we do here where we, we kind of take you back in time. I'd like to go back to that point where you're working in the store, managing the music department of that store, and just getting interested in going into the business. What advice would you give yourself at that point to help you move forward in your career? Finish my law degree. <laughs> that's what it was. That's, that would be the advice. That was easy. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going into politics. I was a poli-sci major. None of this was planned or even considered. I, I've had it. I've had a crazy fun career. I mean, I got to tell you, I've had a crazy fun career. I've, I've seen, I, I've been all over the world. I've been asked to sing or speak at places as odd as the Vatican. I mean, you don't get that everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've had a crazy fun career and looking back on it, I, it was hard. I mean, there were, there were some, there were some struggling, struggling times when you're your own boss and all of a sudden you don't have enough money for the rent. That's tough. But now, as I look back on it, I'm able to cobble together a, a, a career and a um, and enough finances to pay the house note every month. And I, I can look back and be proud of the life that I, I had with no planning at all. Mm-hmm. So, but I, yeah, yeah, I often wonder what kind of a lawyer I would have made. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting started in, in the industry as a whole, what advice would you have for someone? Find a mentor. I don't know that I can say that I actually had a mentor. I, I just wish I had had somebody that had gone, hey, I believe in you. Let's let's figure this. Let's let me help you figure this out because I've already done it. Literally, I've kind of run through and done most of the stuff that I've done without anybody kind of pointing me to it. So the T's that were crossed and the I's that were dotted were happenstance at best. And I really, really do wish that I had had somebody kind of walk me through it or had hired me onto a larger agency so that I could learn that. I mean, I I was in my 50s before I worked at a multi-agent agency. So literally, I figured it out by myself. Mm -hmm. Contracts, figured it out by myself. Got a whole bunch of other people's contracts for, you know, doing other things. I'm okay. So let's cobble together a contract of my own. I mean, so from ground up, it literally was just figured out. One thing that, that we're finding, especially today, during the pandemic, so many people left the industry. So much institutional knowledge was, was lost. Yeah. Having a mentor is a way for that to be handed down. And so I, I think that's such an important thing and such an important approach into developing yourself in the industry and, and being able to do it faster than being able to do it on your own is by having someone that can guide you just that little bit extra. It was interesting. Uh, here at Aiba, I actually, somebody, and I don't, I don't know which one of the seminars it was, somebody actually articulated, and I don't think this was the way they said it, but the average age, the industry professional, it was, it was pretty up there. 
and there was it didn't seem there were a lot of incoming people that were interested in being agents or being uh, you know working their way up in a venue. But if there are those people out there, I mean, I would love to pass on some institutional knowledge. Um, I've got a son who is out there trying to book his own dates and things like that. But he he wants, I don't know where he got the hard head, but he wants to do it himself. Uh, he's just now going, hey, dad, you know, is there anything you can do? And man, am I eager to help him, mm-hmm. you know, now that he's kind of going, hey, dad, I'm at wit's end. What, you know, how can I take this another step? Being on here and kind of telling through your story is one great way to hand down some of that. Right now with the industry as it is today, what is your favorite thing about the industry today? I'll tell you what it is. I think that there is, in the industry today, much more than it has been in the past, there is an appreciation for not only the new, but also the old. Stories are being told in old-fashioned ways again and using genres of music that are quaint because they're so old. You know, I'm I'm working with... uh, an act by the name of Sean Johnson's Big Band Experience, and I love it. I'm having a blast with it. He's a, an incredible and an impeccable entertainer, great crooner, spot-on voice, funny as a crutch. And it's a, but it's an old art form. You know, I mean, it's not like you can go next door and get an arrangement done of a pop tune that's going to include, you know, great horn section. So you got to... you. But that's what he's done. So he's got a great horn section and a great rhythm section, and and it's new music done in an old art form. So those art forms that you kind of see going away are coming back. And then I work with the Malpas Brothers, who, good lord, that you know, steel guitar on everything. And I think we're seeing that in in the overall country music scene as well, with success of people like Sturgill Simpson, right. Tyler Childers. Exactly. I mean, these guys are. Coming back with incredible ex- success, Chris yeah. Stapleton, obviously, and Jason Isbell, they're very much tapping back into that traditional country music feel and vibe and bringing us kind of out of what could be dubbed the bro country era. You know, and, and I know that there is, here in Nashville, there is a, I think it's the American Legion, Gallatin Road. There's a, uh, on Tuesday night, they have just, it's old country. But the people who are out there listening to it and everything, they're all in their 20s. I mean, I didn't find out. I, I didn't know anything about it. Well, my son, who's 27, he's going, well, that's where you got to go. They got a steel guitar player out there who, who may be getting a call from me soon. <laughs> but uh, they've got a great you know show going out there. And they're discovering. So those guys, those younger guys, whether they're like my son in pop music or they're have, they have an appreciation for some of the older stuff. I mean, he was my son. He's a big fan of Merle Haggard up right up until 72. Now, I don't know what that means, but he just, you know, he, he likes the old country, which that's great. I mean, and that serves us well for going forward that there are, that there are genres of music. The sad part, the antithesis of that is that there are not as many ways to be able to hear those. The radio, what is left of it, terrestrial radio is genre specific. Mm-hmm. And then um, you have to really hunt. Uh, there are only a couple of channels on Sirius XM that you can get, but they're limited by the amount of hours in the day that you can play certain. So a lot of great music is not being heard out there right now. So that's the downside of this. But it, the the broadness of the performance, I, I would just encourage everybody to get out and see 
a show that you're unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. And that's where it starts getting really interesting and fun. So I've got one more. I want to be respectful of your time, but I've got one more kind of industry question for you is what do you view the role of the conferences uh, at the conferences? Is it more transactional or is it more relationship building that leads to transactions? My expectations of a conference, whether it's here at IEBA or whether it was at Arts Midwest, uh, North Carolina Arts Market, APAP, it literally was about seeing the people that I'm selling to, getting to know them face to face, getting to sit across a table of them and share a drink, hopefully share a laugh or two. Sounds like the ending to some variety show right there. It literally is about building a relationship. There are guys that I can call today I haven't talked with in two years, but I know that if they can pick up the phone, they will. And that's a rarity mm -hmm. uh, from what I'm told. But it's because consistently for the last you know, 12, 13 years, I've had conversations, multiple conversations with them throughout the years, and they know who I am. They know what I'm going to represent, and they don't mind telling me no which I got to figure that one out. But uh, they don't mind telling me no, but they'll take my call because they want to know where, where I am, what I'm doing, and, and what I've got, whether it works for them or not. They'll tell me if it doesn't work, mm -hmm. but there are conversations, and I enjoy that. They've become friends of mine, and um, um, I've had guys, quite frankly, tell me that oh, I saw your number came up. I have it on Do Not Disturb, but I grabbed it. Um, and that's a real compliment. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's what I get out of the conferences is is the relational. I go there to see them because I can make phone calls and not have to pay the six hundred and some odd dollars to come to the conference. I can make phone calls, but I, the the value is in slapping them on the back, sharing a laugh and a gin and tonic, having a good time. Dan, thank you for your time today. Thanks for sitting down with us. I've really enjoyed it, and I think it's it's really interesting. The literal like winding road and roller coaster of your career as it was through <laughs> all the different aspects of the industry. So, I like I like the roller I, I like the roller coaster aspect. I was just thinking it was a train bound for nowhere. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. I think what I really loved is that early on in this interview, Dan says. If you're curious, you can figure out pretty much anything. And I think I love that because it distills like very simply like what we always talk about on this show. Like the things that we're doing, I mean, honestly, aren't all that complicated. And if you want to figure out how to do something like you can get there, you can call people to figure some things out or you can do some trial and error and it may be, you know, take some more time or be a little bit costly. But like you really can figure out how to do anything. And I just love that he brought that down just like really simply right at the beginning there. Yeah. He talks later on about how he didn't have any mentors. And we talk a lot about how important mentorship has been for each of us. And yet his curiosity is what driven, what drove him to get to the the place he needed to be each time and, and learned. And I, I appreciate it also though, later on, he, he said he would love to be a mentor himself because he recognizes that that would have really been something he, he would have benefited from if he had that. Well, and uh, I mean, for me, he, he was somewhat of a mentor. He was one of the first agents that I had really built a relationship with, uh, whenever I started doing the booking and started going to conferences and in turn, he and I have had a meal at every conference ever since. And we catch up and we talk and, and he stopped by the venue, uh, whenever we've booked stuff in of his and, 
and sat in the light booth with me for random shows. So that relationship has been important for me because he was the first person that I really realized, oh, this is building a relationship in the industry. That set my path on relationship building in the industry forward, really stemming from Dan Man. Uh, touching back on the curiosity is that he had curiosity and you can really you know, go anywhere with that curiosity, but you also have to be bold enough to step into a new situation, willing to learn and do it. Looking at the situation where he was asked, hey, if you were going to start a recording label, how would you go about doing that? And being bold enough to come up with a plan to start a recording label in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, for real. And then, and then them coming back to him and going like, you know, we, we pretty much, we really like your plan. Why don't you do that? We'll back you. What? Like, how, like I can't even conceive of, of, hey, why don't you go ahead and start this? We'll get it going. I was actually in Nashville at IEBA whenever I sat down with, with Dan this was back in October, which I think is important to reference when he was talking about um, back to like 60% of audiences. But I had literally been on a scooter kind of scooting around downtown Nashville. And I had gone past multiple enormous buildings that had this organization on them. Um, and the organization isn't that large anymore, but it was back then. And so the the scale of that organization which in the 80s had multiple like six and eight story buildings in downtown Nashville, that large of an organization backing you to start something like a record label is empowering all of them. So. I think my biggest takeaway, Josh, from your conversation is the term reinvention. Dan continually reinvented himself throughout the course of his career. You guys kind of joke about it being a roller coaster of our career, but listening through it, it was like, wow, at every moment or every, you know, kind of like turning point, Dan was reinventing himself. And I think we sometimes get caught up in the like, I am only this thing and I can only be a programmer. I am only an agent or this is my track. Um, but Dan has done all of the things literally from talent management to agent to promoting that book and doing, you know, speaking engagements, now doing a television show with the Malpas brothers. Like if that is not, um, like you said, flexibility and like being water um, and making the best of kind of whatever comes your way. I don't know what it is. And I think it's a great example of how you can live many lives uh, throughout your career in the performing arts industry. I like how he jokes about people's perception of that as well. How he jokes that some some people in the industry will just say that he can't keep a job. <laughs> purely because that's the expectation is you find a job and you stay with a job. Mm -hmm. um, but Dan, like you said, is reinventing himself all the time. And, and I, I just find his path really, really cool to step back away from and look at as an overall career arc. Well, and I wonder how much of what we're talking about is like expectation or how we perceive people's careers are supposed to go, but how much Dan's trajectory is actually the norm. So many folks that we've talked to already on the podcast have had multiple iterations, multiple lives, multiple career trajectories. So is that actually the norm? And can we start breaking down like that thought process, especially for emerging talent? Um, and something really to think about, like what is that cultural norm within our industry? And do we all have to have one trajectory 
for 40 years of doing this work. Yeah. And sometimes I do think it's hard to listen to somebody distill their career down into just a few minutes because it almost makes it sound like it was a fairy tale, right? Like, oh, I did this for a little bit and then, you know, luck kind of came and and changed, you know, uh, where I was headed and I could be a little creative. And then, you know, I went and I built this whole other thing. And in some ways that's super inspirational because I feel like we find those moments all the time. But I also feel like it could be really disheartening for people like we've been talking about who are intentionally going into the industry. Like they have the end goal, like they know what they're going to do. They're not just going to like fall into it where it's like, it feels like that was so easy. Um, But I really appreciated that he said at different points, like, yeah, I mean, like there were years in there that were hard. There were years in there that like we almost didn't make it. There was a year he took off and worked at Home Depot. And it reminded me that like so many of the accomplishments or like the the wins I feel like I've had have sort of come from learning something new or being flexible or being curious. But like there are times when you feel like those things like should be happening and it like it gets hard. Josh, I really enjoyed learning about um, his start in the business through CCM. I didn't know anything about that part of the industry. Um, You know, I never listened to that music. And what I thought was really cool was that because of that experience, he then got to work with Glenn Campbell. And if you're under 60 years old, you may not recognize that name, but he was a huge pop star um, back in the day and then transitioned into a Christian artist. And he probably wouldn't have had the touring career if it wasn't for Dan. I mean, what an opportunity there. We talk about the opportunities. This came up a lot with, um, we had this conversation when we interviewed Natalie. We've talked about it with Pat Hazel. We talked about it with so many people that those opportunities do happen, but a lot of times we don't recognize them or we say, we kind of block ourselves and say, oh, I'm not ready yet, or I've got to do this or got to do that. And we don't take advantage of it. But but what we keep learning and keep hearing is, no, you got to keep keep yourself ready and be ready and look for those moments because they happen for all of us. Just some of us don't recognize it or take advantage of it, but it does take both. You need to be ready for it. You need to be prepared for it because if that opportunity happens and you're not, and you're just kind of sitting on your laurels, it's not going to work for you. But if you're working at your skills and your, your background and everything, and you're ready for that moment, you'll meet that moment and, and succeed. I'm a big fan of the side hustle. (laughs) <laughs> not a surprise to anybody for me personally a lot of my side hustles in the past have led to success with other things at one point i decided i wanted to be a photographer and i started a photography studio and did that for a few years and then that that turned into a video production studio and then the pandemic happened and i had all of the gear and expertise and experience to immediately within a week start a streaming on online streaming concert series because everything was already there at my fingertips. And that was all because of of the side hustle. And, and to kind of touch back on what Katie was saying earlier, like I have been in my position at the Marion cultural and civic center for 16 years now, but I go in many different directions with side hustles, whether it's here now with the podcast or the mural painting. I love to take on new projects and new things and and create in different ways, but those are all side paths alongside of what I'm doing here at the center in my primary role as executive director. Um, And that's a way for me to follow my passions and experiment with different things. And all of those things that I experiment with and do outside of this add to my overall 
knowledge and experience that I can move forward with in my role here. It's satisfying you because it's fulfilling your drive and your passion. But the the bottom line is it's also benefiting your community in multiple ways. And that's no matter, even though all of our jobs are slightly different, that's what we all do is we're bringing a service to our communities. And so even if it's just on the stage or like you're doing in so many other ways, you're still servicing the community. And that seems to be what underlies everything that we do. Kind of circling back to the TV aspect of him, you know, creating the show, I think is obviously a, it's it's really interesting and it does sort of align with a lot of things that that he's, you know, done leading up to this point. But Josh, I really appreciated the finance and the compensation question on that. Um, because, you know, a lot of times like it segues really nicely into you know, artists being asked to, you know, work for exposure or those kind of things. But Dan had a really good point and sort of reframe that and like focused on that, like, that's up to the artist. It's like, it's up to the artist to decide whether or not, you know, the compensation or what it's going to, you know, cost them, whether that's time or money um, is worth it is like, could be worth it in the end. And I think a lot of times, you know, obviously, like, we and probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast understand that aspect. Um, but there's so many people out there who, you know, really, truly believe that that working for exposure is what artists should be doing. And the reality is like, sometimes it makes sense, but most of the time it it, it doesn't. Like there's got to be some sort of compensation there. And I think the interesting part about that for, for the artist with TV, there are metrics that they can kind of measure that against. Yes. You know, looking at the demographics of the network itself and of that program for the network. And so they ha- there are measurables that they can look at to evaluate what that exposure actually means there as opposed to the vague generalistic, you should do this to for exposure for your career, you know, come and <laughs> people are going to see your photos. <laughs> you know, those are the things where, you know, artists are very clearly being taken advantage of. Whereas this, there's a clear metrics that they can measure against for their own evaluation of benefit for career. When you can use that data too about who and where to when you're plotting out a tour, if you don't know that there are, you know, a large number of people in, you know, a corner of a certain state, then like you're going to find all of the venues in the corner of that state and try and figure out like how you're going to get a tour to go through there. So like you do get strategy and insight into things like that too. I also wanted to lift up an analogy that he used um, in the TV world about being a manager. He said um, he needed to be able to be liquid. Um, and a manager is somebody who fills in the cracks I love that and too. manages yeah. expectations. I love that metaphor for what a manager or what a producer does, because it's different on every job. That definitely like sums it up really lovely. All right, guys. Well, thank you for hanging out with me and listening to the interview with Dan. I'm going to check out of here and go get some fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> thank y'all. Peace. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I also didn't throw in 
like traditional fried chicken, I guess, is also a handheld chicken option. <laughs> I mean, anything's a handheld chicken. Yeah. Check if you try hard enough. Well, I tried to applaud. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, do snaps. <laughs> I can do barely snap. Oh, you can't snap with the claw. You could do a tap with your thumb, probably. <laughs> Oh, jeez.